7 of chapter 6, we see that the church is growing and growth leads to challenges. It often brings us to change our plans, create new plans, um, new ones because of the challenges that we face that comes with growth. The church was looking for leaders of good repute, uh, full of the spirit and wisdom. And because of the church's growth, they needed help. I mean, does this sound familiar? We just look out the window, uh, the building out there taking shape, and we realize that, you know what, we need help. And we're so uh, overjoyed, uh, again, with Builders for Christ, volunteers, and you as a church at UBC, if you've been volunteering already or you're volunteering this week or sometime uh, this summer, we're thankful for, for you and your help because we need your help with this issue that we have because of growth and space. You know, uh, for me, I've got ADD. I don't know if you knew that or not, but uh, um, it, it, I, I get distracted very easily. So my office is just out these doors to the left, right behind that wall. And on the other side of that window is the building project. And so uh, this week, as there's been hammers and cranes moving and beep, 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 beep noises, uh, I just go over about six inches and I look out my window and I get to see the progress that's happening. And so about midway through my day on Monday, I decided instead of going over six inches, over six inches, I'm just going to move my chair, bring my laptop over here. I'm going to work. I'm going to watch what's happening here. And it was so cool to see the progress. You know, as, as most of us, we left church last Sunday morning. We didn't, have, we didn't even have concrete poured yet. And you were just looking out there at gravel. And to see the walls go up, roof and rafters on some of it is just mind-boggling. Um, for me this week as well, on Tuesday, we had our staff meeting over across the street at UBC East. And as I came back from staff meeting, I opened the doors to the church and this smell just hit me. It was overwhelming. And you're like, ah, it was a good smell though. It was 20 pounds of bacon being cooked in the kitchen for all these volunteers for lunch that day. And I'm joking, and, you know, I led up to that moment and all that stuff. But, man, I'm telling you, I walked through that door. This aroma just hit me, and all of a sudden, I was hungry. And there was no work for me that, that morning because as soon as I smelled that bacon, my task list began to change from doing the things I needed to get done to finding the bacon and figuring out, no lie, how I could steal it. <laughs> and that was my goal for Tuesday morning. I'm dead serious. And, and I did that. Okay. I, first off, I just let them know. I went down to the kitchen. I saw all 10 of the cooks in there and I said, ladies, just so you know, that is not fair. Okay. And then I devised my scheme of how I'm going to get this bacon, all right? About a half hour later, I walked back into the kitchen. I said, ladies, I just, I need to let you know the fire alarms are going off. I know it's weird that it's not making an audible voice, but we need all of you right now to come out of this kitchen, proceed through this hallway, and go out there and just wait until we can figure out what's going on. And all of these ladies in this kitchen, they just looked at me. And they've got their spatulas and their clickers, and the one is like a crab. She was clicking those things at me. And I was a little scared. But then as she stopped clicking, she goes, would you like some bacon? Did I have to ask? <laughs> so not only do they build buildings, but they make bacon and they give it away for free. True story. Another reason why I love Builders for Christ. Uh, seriously, though, 
seriously. Walls going up, all the progress that's made. Like the week that we've had, there was one day where it was just like a monsoon came out of nowhere. The rain just started pouring. And I am looking at it on my window, on my laptop, and I'm thinking, well, this is going to be a short day. They're going to wrap it up, go home, put on some dry clothes, tour date in, you know, and maybe they'll come back at work at some point. Well, the, the, they rushed kind of off the, off the slab, and they go to their cars, and um, I figured the cars are just going to leave. But they get in their cars, they pull out these ponchos, they put the ponchos on, and they continue to work, and the pouring down rain blew me away. Blew me away. But then, well, that wasn't it. Like, later on, there was another day to where they were working hard. And they knew it was the end of the day. They were going to eat dinner. They could go back to their hotels or where they're staying. They could shower. They could get some rest for the next day. But they knew that the next day it was going to rain. So they hurried up and ate a quick, quick dinner out on the gym. And then, wouldn't you know it, they went right back to work because they didn't want to lose any time that next day if the rain was going to slow them down. And that's the dedication of this group that's going to be here all summer. And guys, we're, BFC, we are so thankful for you. Thank you. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, being the director of student ministry, I, I just can't tell you how much this space means to our student ministry. Because it's not just our, our worship space for Sunday mornings, our worship student center where on Sunday nights, um, our, our last, over the course of this last school year, we've been across the street over in UBC East and everything's gone great most Sunday nights uh, until we get to about the small group start time. Our last thing that we do, we break up into small groups, talk about some things going on in our life, what we've learned. And when we get to small groups, we've got so many students and so many groups that we don't have the space to break up into these groups on Sunday nights. Sometimes when the weather's nice outside, we can send four or five of these groups outside and they can meet outside, no problem. But when it's raining, when it's snowing, when it's too dark outside during the fall, like we've had four or five groups that would cross the street over here and meet Sunday night. Well, half of our, you know, the other half of our group is meeting at East. And so I just, I, I can't even tell you how excited I am to think that in a, just a number of months, all of our students are going to be together. We'll be able to spread out. We'll have space and we'll have space to grow. And that's exciting for me, to me. Um, Back to the book of Acts, right? Because the church is go growing, you know, they need help. And, and we'll see in Acts, um, we'll see in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that they add seven leaders. We talked about this last week. One of the, one of the seven is, is this guy named Stephen. This morning, we're going to talk about him a lot. We'll talk about him more next week. We'll make some points kind of as we go through this morning about Stephen on some of the words that Luke uses to describe him. But first off, Luke mentions the seven leaders that um, they're going to be appointing to be the table waiters or meet some of the general needs of the church. In your study Bible, it probably makes note that of these seven guys, five of them will never be mentioned again uh, in Acts. But while Philip and Stephen will be mentioned and will be kind of prominent figures throughout the book of Acts. You know, this morning, um, we'll see that author Luke goes into maybe some descriptive detail of Stephen, referring to him as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. We'll get acquainted with them a little bit more. But today, as we dig into this passage, um, we're going to look at these last seven verses of chapter 6 in Acts 
6, 8 through 15. But before we dig into that, you know, if I could summarize these seven verses and just kind of have a common theme or a big idea, the big idea would be this, that following God has a cost. And while the cost is high, the worth, it is worth the price. Following God is a cost and the cost is worth the price. Um, you know, a lot of us in here, as parents, as adults, we maybe have, to, have had to rework our budgets a little bit over the last couple months or weeks, and the cost of groceries has gone up, energy, heat bills, electricity have gone up, um, hasn't yet. We're like, oh, brace yourselves for it because we've heard it's coming, right? Um, gasoline and our cars and filling them up have gone up. You know, if you were me this week, I, I about literally died when I went from empty to full and looked at how much it cost me. And I fell over and the guy at the pump next to me rushed over with the AED. He was getting ready to charge me when all of a sudden I, I came back. Thankfully, he didn't use it because I don't know how that would work with gasoline, right? Um, <laughs> don't want to find out. But from a, like, a student ministry standpoint, like as we look, last August, as we kind of faced maybe a decision to what, what we're going to do next year for summer camp and how many spots are we going to reserve and do we do the same number of spots that we did this last year and maybe we expected, we expected God to grow our group a little bit and we reserved some extra spots for camp this coming year, but we had to do it a year in advance. And as we, like, you know, it's only $20 a spot to reserve, but the amount of spots that we did, it wasn't the $20 each spot, but when we factor in not just the cost of her registration, but when we factor out the cost of the bus, and not just the bus, but a rental van, because the bus doesn't seat enough kids, and the cost of the lodging, and the food, and all of the cost for camp, it comes down to this year about over $28,000 to send our students to camp. The cost is high, but it's worth the price. Now, I know I felt the audible gasp at that $28,000. And each, ser each service, I've been wondering, maybe I shouldn't have shared that number. But at the same time, like, man, it's a lot. But it is worth the cost. Um, every every, every uh, month, I'm, re I'm reminded in our members meeting um, from someone who shares their testimony, wanting to become a member at our church, and they share stories of how God had worked in their life or in their heart, or they put their faith and trust in him at summer camp when they were a teenager. And I remember the cost is high, but it's worth the price. Um, just this last year, as we were planning and doing that stuff, we were blown away at this time last year because... Uh, not blown away last year, but blown away this year. But as we look back at last year and what happened a week and a half before camp, we were still trying to put, find some students to go to camp because we had extra spots. Still, find it, still finding them and filling those spots. And, and, and this year, when we opened up registration about a, a month and a half ago, blown away because when we opened up registration, within 30 hours of our registration being open, camp was full. Every spot was taken. We had a waiting list. I think it's like the first time ever. I don't know. But we had students that wanted to camp that we couldn't take to camp because we didn't have spots. And uh, when we look at it, the $28,000 blown away because of how God is working. Big investment, but reminded God is working in our lives of students. You know, uh, for me, I want, I don't know if it's selfishly, but I want, I want summer camp to be the funnest week of the year for our students. I want it to be a blast. But at the same time, 
more than I want camp to be fun, I want God to just do some awesome things in the lives of our students and work in their hearts and in their lives and, and bring some of them to know him personally. I want him to work in their lives. Because camp is just fun, but God doesn't do anything. It's not worth the cost. But this, uh, this coming week, you know, as we gear up and this time next Sunday, we'll be loading the bus off to camp. But as we're prepping and preparing those last kind of minute details for camp, and next Sunday as we leave, and then June 9th on Thursday when we come back, would you just join me in praying for the lives of our students? That God would do some awesome things, and he would move in their hearts and in their lives in ways that uh, only he can. All right. Camp's expensive but it's worth the cost. All right, no more youth director, rabbit trails. Let's dig into our text this morning. Acts uh, 6, 8 through 15, the word of God says this. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who had said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have never heard we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at them in verse 15, all who sat on the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So this man, Stephen, who we learned about last week. Luke described him in verse 5 as a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Uh, look at how Luke, the author of Acts, describes Stephen in verse 8. He says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So now not only is Stephen a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, but he's also described as being full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, um, if you're like me, sometimes when you read the book of Acts, you read great signs and wonders and you get kind of caught up in it, but then sometimes you'll miss the words before it or the words after it. And I want to kind of point out, like, look at the phrase right after the signs and wonders, the phrase, among the people. And I don't know about you, but I want that to be said about me. I can think of people who have shown me grace in my life that, man, they've just gone out of their way. Um, even though I didn't deserve grace at times, uh, they've reached into my life. They're, they're the people that I want to be around. Um, they have this excitement or joy of life. Um, they, you can't help but be with them and not feel energized or encouraged among the people. You know, this week has been a, a fun week, not just because the building is taking shape and we can see progress and results, but it's been a fun week for me because I've gotten to tease Pastor Jason a little bit. And uh, if you know me, you're like, well, that's not anything out of the ordinary. You probably tease him every week. And well, you're, you're right, I do. Uh, but this week was a little bit more fun uh, because he was among the people. He was outside helping build the building, um, not just in his office studying or doing things that pastors do. He was among the people helping build the building. And well, how did I get to tease him? Well, there were days that it was raining and I would see him walking down the hallway and I'd be like, hey, Dude, how'd you get all wet? 
And then I'd go up to him, oh, you're not wet. Are you wet? And then I'd be like, oh, well, your shirt is dark. Maybe you're not. And then I'd touch him and be like, hey, wait, your shirt's dry. Everybody else out there is wet. And he'd be like, uh, you know, I'm not doing anything right now. They, they didn't need me. And, and there was another day later in the week when uh, some of us on staff here at church, we went out uh, and just took a little break and went out for ice cream. And uh, while we're having ice cream together down the street over at Grader's, uh, you know, I pick up my phone to look at something and it says, missed call, Jason Wing. And I go, huh, he probably wants to know where I'm at. And I put it away and figured, you know, I'll see him in five minutes uh, when we go back. And then uh, I see another guy across the table pull up his phone and it says, missed call, Jason Wing. And he puts it away and we look at each other and I go, I bet he's wondering where we all are and why we're not here at church right now. And as we're driving back, I said to the other guy, I said, you know, he's going to ask us where we were. And when we tell him we went to ice cream, he's going to say, well, thanks, guys. Why didn't you invite me? Sure enough, I'm in my office watching the work site. I hear the conversation going on. Hey, where were you? And he goes, oh, we went out and got ice cream. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Why didn't you invite me? And, and I'm just in my office just enjoying this, this moment. But it's been so cool to see, you know, our pastor out there among the people. And, uh, you know, for me, I don't want to just be a student ministry director that sits, on my, sits in my office and, you know, studies God's word and learns about grace, but I want to be with our students. I want to be reaching out to them and their friends, getting to know them with our youth leaders, um, having them over to our house. You know, I feel like the best discipleship is discipleship that's among the people because that's what discipleship is. You know, Stephen wasn't just all about grace, though. Luke describes him as full of grace and power. You know, the power of God was confirmed in Stephen through the signs and wonders. Just kind of on a side note, whenever we see the signs and wonders in the Bible, they're usually in the Bible to point people to the power of God. Um, Stephen was really the first person other than the apostles uh, to be performing signs and wonders. You know, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jason in a sermon or a couple of sermons, he's brought out this, this idea and just this reminder that normally when we look at the book of Acts, we see the signs of wonders and we kind of can sometimes get caught up with what is this? It happens all through the book of Acts. But when we look at it from a standpoint of the book of Acts was written under, under a history or period of about 30 years. And then when we also see that in the book of Acts, there's about 30 signs, wonders, and miracles. When we put it all together and view it through the lens of, that's about on average one sign, miracle, wonder per year through those 30 years. When we view it through that lens, we're reminded that, you know, each one of us could probably see a miracle of God over the course of a year if we're really looking you know, in Acts 1.8, um, it says this, that, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Luke again uses some descriptive words here um, when referring to Stephen. Not necessarily right there, but God's working through Stephen who's full of grace and power and doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, it's not really a surprise when we look at verse 3 about who and what kind of guys they're looking for to be these leaders to help. They're looking for seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And we look at that phrase of good repute, and we're like, oh, what's that mean? Maybe a good testimony, highly regarded, trustworthy. 
In Acts 1.8, it would talk about, you will be my witnesses. And when we look at like the Greek word here for witness, um, the Greek word witness is martis, which came to be associated with witnessing to the point of death, from which the word martyr would later be derived from. You know, as we'll see in Stephen, uh, uh, we'll soon see that he would become the first martyr or ultimate witness in the early church. You know, but how does this spiral, how does the, the events go from Stephen becoming a leader to giving up his life? Well, opposition came in. Um, in verse 9, opposition, we'll see it. Stephen was, was, wasn't just content. Like, his, his role or his, what he was supposed to do was he was helping with the general needs of the church, waiting tables. But at the same time, while he's faithful in the small things, he, like the apostles, had a passion for preaching of the word. And we'll, we'll see him preaching the word. We'll find him reaching out to people, sharing the gospel. He was faithful in the small things that he got to do, and he was faithful in the things that he was passionate about as well. And we know that as he was teaching at the synagogue of freedmen in, in verse 9, uh, people from Cyrene, all different groups of people, Cyrene, people of Alexandria, people of Cilicia and Asia, all from different walks of life, all have different stories of what brought them here. But we look at that, why is it referred to as the synagogue of freedmen? Maybe it's because we, we believe that a lot of the people that were there were former slaves who were released or now were uh, free or could have been prisoners at some point or relatives or members of, members of family that were once prisoners. Lots of different backgrounds there. Um, that are all brought together. You know, we don't know exactly, though, at the same point, what exactly Stephen was talking about or teaching on, or we don't have all the specifics or his outline, but we know that what he was teaching and preaching on was causing a lot of questions and some conflict. People weren't happy, but look at what verse 10 says. It says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking you know, in my mind, I go to Stephen as being full of grace and power, a man of full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And I think of a situation and believe that God was working in his life in that particular moment, especially giving him power and grace to preach the gospel. I remember the words that Jesus shared in Luke 12, 11 through 12, where he says this, and when they bring you before the synagogues, and the rulers and the authorities do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You know, there wasn't a way to out debate him or get him to just kind of be quiet or be put in his space. They, the only way to win was to, result to resort to manipulation and lies to accuse him. The, the very same thing that they would do or did with Jesus. Verse 11, look what it says. It says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And when you can't win, but you really can't handle being wrong, you resort to doing anything you can to make sure you don't lose. So they secretly instigated men to lie. They hired men to, uh, to get people to say that he was blaspheming against God and Moses. And well, why accuse him of being blasphemous or blasphemy against Moses or God? Because maybe an accusation against Moses would be a really easy thing to do if he was speaking about the Old Testament law. 
Or if Stephen's talking about the temple being destroyed and rebuilt, Jesus said the very same thing. Secretly instigated means putting words in people's mouth. They were making false suggestions. What was blasphemy? Blasphemy was a profane misuse of the God of Israel. They're upset and saying that Stephen was um, talking about God and the temple incorrectly because he was relating uh, that to Jesus. Look what he says in verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. They came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. They did their hit job well. The Sanhedrin was riled up. They quickly arrested him. They moved uh, to get rid of him. Look at what verses 13 through 14 tell us. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Luke is making a point here by pointing out that Stephen is being set up by false witnesses. We'll see this in chapter 7, that the statements that the, these false witnesses would make will be a twist on true statements. Luke is deliberate in using the word false witnesses, I think, here, because it's exactly what happened at Jesus' trial. The people were so caught in their traditions that they weren't able to comprehend the things that Stephen was saying. And again, we don't really know all that Stephen was teaching, but at that moment and in those conversations, we knew that they were upset about what he said about the temple. See, the temple for them was a place in the Old Testament where a sacrifice was made so that people could be made right with God. When Jesus died on the cross as our sacrifice for sins, though, the temple was no longer a place. It was now the person and work of Jesus. If Stephen was talking about the temple being destroyed, he was teaching that uh, we don't need that physical building anymore because we can have direct access through Jesus Christ. You know, the destroying and the rebuilding was done in Jesus' death and his resurrection. The false witnesses would claim that Stephen was speaking against the holy place. A friend of mine would say about this passage that Stephen was speaking of a holier place. Because when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, the sacrifices were no longer needed. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And we don't have to go to that temple and offer sacrifices. We have access to God through him, through Christ. Think about this, though. If you're Stephen, you're snatched in the middle of your conversation that you're having. What's going on in your head? Are you worried? Are you scared? Are you nervous? I'm reminded again of Jesus' words in Luke 21, 12 through 15, where he says, but before this, before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness and settle in therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And the chapter closes in verse 15 with a picture that I think uh, the author includes so that we see and we know that God was there in the midst of all of this with Stephen. Look what verse 15 tells us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
You know, this is something that we don't often see in the New Testament. Um, It's an image or a description of someone who is close to God. They're literally reflecting some of his glory from being in his presence. We We would see this in Exodus 34, 29, when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and just beaming because he was in the presence of God. We'd see this later on in the book of Acts with Paul. You know, this morning, uh, it's a good picture that we see for him, for Luke to include, because we see that Stephen wasn't just left alone. Even though he may feel alone at times here, God was with him right in the midst, and we see it with his face beaming. That leads us to two takeaways this morning as we wrap up. Here's the first one. Be faithful in the small. Just because God hasn't given you maybe a bigger role doesn't mean that he isn't working through you. Regardless of your role or what it looks like, we are all valuable to God. And the work that he has given us to do is just as valuable as someone maybe with a different role. You know, maybe you're in here this morning and maybe you feel stuck right now. You're a little bit excited that you don't have to go to work tomorrow since it's a holiday, but you're dreading maybe Tuesday. Maybe you're dreading going to work, you feel stuck, or you feel like your job is, just has no meaning and you're there to punch a time card and get paid. And maybe in the midst of it all, God has got you in that position, at that very place, to have a conversation with someone that needs to know him personally. So in that meaningless job, bring meaning to it. You know, maybe... Maybe your job is your kids. You know, you're at home changing diapers, cleaning up a thousand messes. As you're cleaning up one of those thousand messes, your kids are the silent assassins in another room creating five more messes for you to clean up. And maybe in the midst of that, it's the reminder that's hard to see at times that your kids and pointing them to Jesus and raising your kids to love Jesus is probably your most important job. Here's our second takeaway this morning that God will fight for you. When others stir up or instigate or lie about you, realize that God is with you. Just like he was with Stephen in the midst of that, he's fighting for you even if it doesn't seem like it. You know, it's been a long time since I've been at Bible college and in a youth ministry class, and, but I'll never forget the words of uh, my youth ministry professor when he was talking to us one day about how, you know, you're probably going to be in ministry. You're going to have this passion to love students and love God and point them to them, point them to him, and you're going to go through some tough stuff in ministry. And there's going to be a time where you're going to have to remember these words that time and truth go hand in hand. And You know, we wrote it down in our notebooks, and I'll never forget just years and years ago, being young and being in ministry, and ministry seeming to, or student ministry at the time in another church in another state, just seeming like it was going great. And then, you know, getting a call from the leadership at our church and asking me and my wife to come for a meeting uh, one night, and we're in that meeting, and I'll just never forget taking some punches that night. You know, not literal physical punches, but I'll never forget just taking some of the punches that night. And it wasn't even just so much hearing hard words or taking some punches as much as it was 
my wife just being there by my side and, you know, hearing those things at the same time. And um, we lived about a mile away from our church, um, this one that we served. And as we went home that night, it was the longest, slowest mile I'd ever driven in my life. And I drive, you know, pretty fast at times, but, you know, not with students, right? But that night, it was like God had put extra stop signs on our way home. And I remember just being at one of those stop signs and my wife just kind of turning to me, tapping my hand and saying, you know, I'm processing all of it tonight, but the big question that I have is why didn't you just stick up for yourself a little bit more tonight? And, you know, I remember looking at her and saying, you know, I just kind of felt like it wouldn't have mattered what I said because they had their minds up on this for whatever reason. And it didn't matter what I said or any of the things that I could say, it, time and truth go hand in hand. You know, my professor would follow that phrase by saying time and truth go hand in hand and in time, the truth will always catch up. It will always come out. And that it didn't matter what I needed to say or didn't say. I didn't need to stick up and fight or tear someone else down or blame someone else. In time, the truth always catches up. You know, our big idea from the text this morning is that following God is a cost. And the cost is worth the price. Um, man, as I look back on just God's uh, faithfulness, right? and how he has been so faithful to me in my life and uh, in, with my family and how he guides us. And sometimes there's been some tough stuff, but at the same time, he is always there in the midst of it, fighting with us or going before us in ways that maybe we don't even see at the same time until later. You know, this morning, we're gonna transition now to communion as we focus and we prepare our hearts for um, what we're about to take in the Lord's Supper, um, we're going to be remembering some of the words that Stephen said. Remembering God's faithfulness. That when we take communion, uh, we take communion, Christ's body broken on the cross, remembering that his blood that was shed for us, remembering that Stephen, what he was teaching were hard words for the Jews to hear at the time. They loved and they respected their temple. But when Jesus came to earth and died on the cross, he was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 7, 27 would say this, that uh, reminding us about our high priest, that he has no need like those other high priests to offer gifts and sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You know, just like Stephen was teaching, we don't need sacrifices at the temple anymore because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Paul would go on to remind the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about communion and the importance of taking and remembering what Christ did by saying, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he had given thanks, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, also, he took the cup and after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And again, when we come to the communion table, we're remembering and we take the bread and we take the cup, the bread representing Jesus's body that was broken for us on the cross 2,000 years ago and the juice representing the blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And just want to remind us this morning that as we take communion, communion is for those of us who have confessed our sins to, to God, asked for forgiveness of those sins and put our faith and our trust in Jesus as our Savior. Paul would go on in verse 26 to say, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when we're taking communion like we're taking today, we're remembering what he did for us. In a moment, the ushers are gonna come forward. They're gonna start in the back and they're gonna dismiss you row by row to take communion. You'll come up these uh, side aisles and you'll take the bread and you'll take the cup and then you'll come down and go back to your seats to the center aisles. Um, all of the bread is gluten-free this morning. And after you get back to your seats, um, you don't have to wait on us to say anything or give you more instruction. But when you're ready, you can take the bread and you can take the juice and partake of the Lord's Supper. You know, parents, I know it's a fifth Sunday, worship together. We've got our kids in here this morning. And um, a lot of it's on you, whether or not you know, your children will take communion. Um, be discerning and ask yourselves, have your kids really put their faith and trust in Christ and ask them to forgive them of their sins? You know, if they have, your children are welcome to take communion with us. You know, if not, please ask your children to just refrain this morning, but use this as an opportunity to talk with your kids about why we're doing this. You know, just this last week, uh, my wife Tiffany and I, we were blown away with God's goodness and our youngest daughter, coming to us and saying, I want to talk about Jesus. And um, Maddie, over the course of a couple of days, put her faith and trust in Christ. And uh, we're blown away with God's goodness about that. So use this as an opportunity to have those conversations with your kids. Uh, at the same time, maybe you're not a child, but you're in here, and maybe it's you know your first time being in church for years. Maybe you've never been in church until this morning, and you're wondering why in the world would Christians celebrate the death of Christ. And we do it because he was, like Stephen said, the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, once for all, and what he did for us. And maybe you, this morning, you're not at that moment to where you have put your faith and trust in Christ and asked him to forgive him of your sins. So this morning, as we take uh, communion and the ushers come forward, examine your hearts. It's a great day, though, to give your life to him. But we'd ask you to refrain from taking communion this morning if you don't have a relationship with him. Um, the ushers are going to come forward. Let me pray for us and we'll partake in the Lord's Supper. Father, we just thank you for sending your son Jesus to be that ultimate sacrifice for our sin. Lord, we're a mess. We're sinners and we needed a savior. And you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross to be broken for us. The blood he shed is the blood that cleanses us, purifies us, and we can have forgiveness through. We thank you that he didn't just die, though. He rose from the dead, and he was that ultimate sacrifice for us. Lord, we just pray that as we're just examining our hearts this morning, if there's anybody in here that hasn't yet given their life to you, we pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, um, 
go before us this week and go before us this morning. We're just so thankful for what you've done for us. We thank you for your forgiveness that we can have. And we remember you this morning and what you did, sacrificing yourself for us. We praise you for this. Amen.